Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. The race season is upon us. Hopefully that's true where you live. Even if it isn't, we hope this episode helps you understand how to train in the race season. Of course, any discussion about racing must be preceded by a discussion of the base season, which sets that foundation for success. So today we start with a bit of a review of the base season. Once we set our focus on race physiology, we address which assets must be developed, how and when. How much top end do you need? Which assets take longer to develop and which can be honed in just a few sessions? We'll answer both of those questions and many more. Once the stage is set, we dive deeper into how you go about planning and refining the assets you've identified, whether that's through threshold work, anaerobic capacity workouts, or something else. Our featured guest today is a Fast Talk veteran. Dr. Inigo San Milan, director of training at UAE Team Emirates, has appeared on the show numerous times before, and now we're proud to welcome him back after successfully coaching Tade Pogacar to the 2020 Tour de France title. With Inigo's help, we get a glimpse of how this incredibly talented prodigy trains, and most importantly, how those lessons can be applied to any amateur cyclist. In this star-studded episode, we also hear from elite coach Neil Henderson, who heads performance at Wahoo Fitness, former Olympian and longtime Fast Talk contributor Colby Pierce, and we also hear from pro Brent Bookwalter of Team Bike Exchange. Wherever you are, we sincerely hope that racing is on your horizon. Let's make you fast. Hey, it's Coach Ryan here. Many of us are enjoying a return to bike racing. These early races of the season are ideal for testing your race fitness. But how much more could you get out of this season if you knew your VO2 max, or if you reset your training zones? Our new Inside Advanced Test offers you an incredible detailed look at both of these metrics and many more. Schedule an Inside Test with us this week and your test results can pay off in better performance for the rest of the season. See more at FastTalkLabs.com. Well, welcome to Fast Talk, Dr. San Milan. It's a pleasure to have you back. Yeah, thank you very much for having me here. It's uh, yeah, pretty happy to be back. For those who don't know, Dr. San Milan is a bit of a superstar. He is the coach of Tade Pogacar on the UAE team, uh, winner of the Tour de France. That's part of the thing that he does in life, uh, in professional life. He's also you know, working on some cures for cancer in his spare time and all of that. He's got a lot going on. Today, we want to really have a focused conversation about the physiology of race season. We often hear people say, uh, here's what you should do, here's what you don't do leading up to that race season. Now we kind of want to talk about the why of those um uh, pieces of advice. Why do we want to do those things and why do we want to avoid some other things? So we really dive into the physiology with Dr. San Milan today. And I just got to kind of emphasize what you said, just the impressiveness of your resume. We were talking about this offline. Dr. San Milan is working with a, a highly respected uh, physiologist named Dr. Brooks and some cutting edge uh, cancer research and and in between working on curing cancer he's also coached an athlete to winning the the tour de france 
Dr. Samalad and I had the same thesis advisor. I'm pretty sure our thesis advisor looks at both of us and then looks at me and goes, what happened? Come on, come on. <laughs> what happened to you? <laughs> no, you, mean, you guys are doing an amazing job. Very necessary what you guys do in educating the audience and transmitting the knowledge. So this is, it's very fundamental. It, it will show results, I'm very sure, in, in, in many athletes uh, down the road, which is key. So... Great job. Well, appreciate that. Let's take a step back, as we often like to do, and give the context of the discussion here. What are the assets that we're trying to target in the race season? People might call it top end, some of that fine tuning that's going on. Dr. Samalan, I'll start with you here. What are we talking about? Let's define the attributes of race season. When I look about this, this, those attributes, I always think at the cellular level. So we need uh, in bioenergetics, right? So we need a, a very good lactate clearance capacity, a very good fat burning or fat oxidation capacity. Uh, we need a, a very good glycolytic capacity, which I also call the turbo. And we need a very good high intensity anaerobic sprinting capacity. So those are the main energy systems that they're going to make an athlete uh, successful. What of those attributes are things that are more in the biochemical realm versus those that are in the sort of the physical realm? So we know that in the season, you don't decide the races uh, at the zone two level, for example. You you don't get any awards for being the the slowest guy. You get the awards for being the the fastest guy, right? So, and this is where you need to to have high intensity and competition pace. But uh, uh, before that, you really need to have a very good base. And and, and that, that comes at the cellular level from a very solid mitochondrial function. When you travel through a race at high intensities, the fast twitch muscle fibers, they produce a lot of uh, lactate. And it's not lactate itself because lactate is a great fuel for the body, but it's the hydrogen ions associated to lactate that they're going to decrease the uh, pH of the muscle and, and, and interfere with what's called the or we're calling nowadays from, from cancer, we call it now the, 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 the muscle microenvironment. Um, we know that in, 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 it's a little off topic, but we know that in cancer, lactate is responsible for the acidic environment of cancer. And it's called the cancer or tumor microenvironment, which is the, one of the hottest areas of research now. But anyways, it, it's caused by the hydrogen ions decreasing the pH uh, and interfering with the function in this case of the muscle. So this is what happens at high intensities. Uh, so when you travel through the race, you have to have a very good lactate clearance capacity so that you're very um, metabolically efficient. And in order to achieve that, you need to, to clear lactate very well. And you do that mainly in the mitochondria of the type 1 muscle fibers, the slow twitch muscle fibers, which are the ones who have the highest mitochondrial function. So this is important because... If you are going to show up at the last climb or the last push of a, of a race, and let's say you have seven millimoles or eight millimoles of lactate, you're not going to have many chances uh, because that means that you haven't been able to travel through the race economically. Whereas if you arrive to that last climb with two millimoles, uh, your muscles are much fresher and they're going to be able to deploy the turbo. So you can have a great glycolytic capacity and, and have done a lot of high intensity training and intervals. Uh, but if you don't have the good lactic cleanse capacity, 
it's just not going to work. On the other hand, especially with longer races, you, you need to preserve glycogen. And in order to preserve glycogen, you need to be very efficient at burning fat. And this is where here we go again with a mitochondria of slow twitch muscle fibers, which is uh, a mitochondria is the only place where you burn fat. So the better the mitochondrial function, the better the fat burning, and the more glycogen you preserve for uh, the second part of the race. So those are the, the, the there's sort of key elements that uh, intuitively people tend to forget when they put together a training plan for an athlete because we all want to go faster and, and we all know that we this is where the races are decided in that high state so intuitively we do high intensity but if you don't have the uh, basics to 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 for for fat burning and for lactic cleanse capacity it's very difficult to be successful so this is how i see uh how you get there so i'm looking at a study right now that i think you would agree with this a hundred percent uh, it's going to be a, an older study now. It's called Aerobic Fitness and Amplitude of the Exercise Intensity Domains During Cycling. And they did this interesting experiment where they took untrained athletes and, and highly trained cyclists, put them through, a, a, I think it was a VO2 max test. I can't remember if it was a VO2 max or a lactate test. But in either case, they, they put them through the test and then figured out the amplitude of that that time through the test that was spent below VT1, between VT1 and VT2, and then what was spent above VT2. So basically looking at the, the three zones on a, a three-zone model. Mm -hmm. And what was I found really interesting about the study was untrained and trained cyclists, the amplitude of the, the time spent above VT2 or above threshold was exactly 31% for both. <laughs> and the difference that you saw in the untrained and the, the highly trained was the amplitude of the, the time spent below VT1, which was huge in the pros, pretty small in the untrained. So that, to me, is kind of getting at what you're saying, which is really you set your level with all that base training, building that, that aerobic engine, and that top-end fitness is always going to be kind of 31%. So if you don't have that, that base fitness, you're kind of capping yourself. You, you can't compensate by getting a better top-end. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree uh, with that study. I, I read it. It's a great study. There are a couple of more similar, also showing similar results. But I also, I, I have learned a lot and keep learning from the real world, right? And this is what I see at the highest level of cycling. Gasson is not able to, 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 to do a very good base in the winter. Uh, the season is not going to go well, for sure. Uh, at least until he or she resets button and, 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 and redoes that, that base. Uh, if you do a very good base throughout the winter, and in the preseason, yeah, yeah, you're going to be much better off. This is absolutely no doubt about it. I could say names on our team, even for example, that for for several reasons they get injured or or, or they have biomechanical issues or simply they finish late, especially with COVID, and they linked one season to another and they didn't have the time to 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 do this uh, base and 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 they're really hurting in the races. Uh, this is I see this year in, in every every year. So. And I see obviously in other categories, but uh, um, we, we learn a lot 
from what we see at the highest level of the sport so that we can use at other levels, you know, of, of cycling. One thing I want to make sure is very clear and emphasized right up front. I we've we've mentioned this on many shows in the past, but I think for this discussion it's worth reminding people. There are these the the attributes you're talking about when it comes to the base season are those that they do take a long time to develop. The ones we're talking about for race season, those quote unquote top end things but those biochemical changes that adaptations that need to take place for us to find that top end those happened quite a bit faster so the 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 problem you can run into is if you do that stuff too early then you can plateau early or if you continue to do it then that's when you get into overtraining when you're racing and doing the intensity in training simultaneously do i have that correct uh trevor let's start with you well, I hate to steal Dr. Samalan's thunder here because I'm going to maybe give the dummies version of something here that Dr. Samalan is quite literally the top expert in the world on when you're talking about lactate metabolism. But a good way to, to think about this there. So lactate gets actually transported around our body. So um, our anaerobic muscle fibers pump it out. Um, because they can't really use it. Our aerobic fibers love to take it up and use it for fuel. When we're actually going hard, our hearts almost rely exclusively on lactate for fuel. So it's actually quite important. There are these transporters, and this is where I know Dr. Salmalan is going to talk a lot more about this in a minute because I'm the dummy in the room on this. He's, he's the expert. There are these transporters called monocarboxylate transporters. And yes, Chris, make fun of me for butchering that. <laughs> MCT. So just, let's call the them MCTs. There's two types that we really want to focus on here, MCT1 and MCT4. MCT4 will express in your anaerobic fibers, and they transport the lactate out of the fibers. MCT1s take up the, the lactate. So you'll see them expressed in your more oxidative fibers that want to use this lactate for fuel. So lots of research on uh, how, the, how you can increase the expression of these, but you really see high-intensity work causes this expression of the MCT4 to get the lactate out, and those adaptations are rapid. You're talking days. MCT1 takes much longer to express. That's where it takes months. So that's part of the reason you need to do that long base work to get that MCT1 expression up. And if all you're ever doing is high-intensity, you're going to express a whole lot of these MCT4s. They're going to pump the lactate out, and then there's nowhere for the lactate to go. Mm. Do, you, do you have a, a practical example of this? As somebody that maybe just does a lot of high-intensity work, what that looks like physiologically? I've talked about this on the show before, but one of the, the best examples I've ever seen of what happens when somebody does a ton of high-intensity is there was this master's athlete that I started working with. He was all-intensity all the time. And when I started working with him, he's like, oh, let me send you this test result that I did. It was a bit of an odd test where the uh, examiner just had him ride for an hour at about 240, 250 watts, which was below his threshold. So it would have been kind of that between uh, VT1 and VT2 type effort for him. And the entire hour, he was maintaining his lactates at like seven or eight millibols, which you just look at it and go, how are you sustaining that? And uh, yeah, I, I talked to the guy who gave the test. He's like, oh, yeah, I see this in, in master somewhat frequently. It's because 
it's not that they're producing tons of lactate. It's that they haven't developed that system. So the, the, the muscle fibers are pumping the lactate out into the blood, but there's no slow twitch fibers really taking it back up. So it just sits there in the blood and accumulates. Yeah, exactly. This, this is why doing lactate testing is a very good surrogate to know what happens at the mitochondrial level, right? If you, uh, if you have a solid mitochondria and uh, you are able to clear lactate in the, uh, from, coming from the fast twitch muscle fibers exported by those transporters that I mentioned earlier, the MCT4s, and they're imported into this, the, the, small, the slow twitch muscle fibers into the mitochondria by another transporter, which is the MCT1. Um, and they're metabolized there for fuel. So you're not only getting rid of that acidic microenvironment, but you also use lactate as an extra fuel. And uh, lactate is, is a more potent fuel than, than carbohydrates, for example. Traumatic brain injury patients, for example, they prefer to use, the brain prefers to use lactate over glucose. And pretty much every cell in the body would like lactate over glucose because it's a much much uh, simpler process to metabolize it. So anyways, lactate is, is a great fuel. So when you have a good lactic clearance capacity, you kill two birds with one stone. First, you don't accumulate lactate and the acidic microenvironment is lower and therefore the muscle contraction is gonna be better. And second, you use it as a fuel and you spare uh, other fuels too. But yeah, if you don't have a good uh, mitochondrial function, as you said very well, uh, Trevor, you're going to, uh, you, you have no other choice than sending the lactate out to the blood, right? Where it's then utilized, burned by almost every cell in the body for fuel again, but it's in the blood. And, and, and this is what it means that you don't have a good lactic cleanse capacity in the muscle. So it just sits there. This is probably jumping far ahead, but since we're talking so much about it, I think it needs to be asked. What are the things that someone can do to improve their lactate clearance capacity. Going back to the lactate in the blood, we also know that lactate in, in the blood inhibits lipolysis. That is uh, the breakdown of, of fat adipose tissue uh, into fat. It binds to a receptor, GPR81, and uh, which is expressed in uh, fat cells in the adipose tissue. And with lactate binds there, it inhibits lipolysis. So this is another thing. You don't want to have high blood lactate because you're going to inhibit fat burning, which is going to come back to haunt you at the end of the race. So this is one more reason to have a good lactate clearance capacity. What would you suggest for building that lactate clearance? Is this yeah. something that you work on in the base season or is this an in-season training thing? So I think that the main, the main uh, time to do this is in the off-season. At least this is what I do with my athletes. I do that in the off season, and uh, uh, this is what what I call the zone two. That about 25 years ago, people would laugh at these concepts, and now <laughs> a lot of people are talking about zone two. But um, yeah, I, I think that this is very important because this is the exercise intensity where you are stimulating those muscle fibers, type ones, and the mitochondria uh, to both uh, clear lactate as well as to uh, burn fat. And as we discussed, this is something that is, it, it doesn't take, you know, a couple of weeks or so. It takes at least two months. So this is what uh, the best time you have to, to build this is in the off season. Once you start the, the season, you don't have much time 
to do this, you need, as we discussed, to focus on the high intensity exercise and the recovery, but you should at least uh, keep stimulating here and there that zone two because you will deteriorate. And this is what I see and I've seen over the years, uh, not just in, uh, in cyclists, but in other athletes, that when um, they stop completely doing zone two, uh, halfway through the season or towards the end of the season, you see a decrease in, in, in fat burning capacity as well as in lactic cleanse capacity because uh, all they have done has been racing and recovery, uh, but they haven't been able to, to do this. Um, translated into the, the, the world of uh, professional cycling at the, the, the highest level, this is one of the reasons why you know, more and more uh, athletes or cyclists, they space their competition quite a bit and even take time off in the middle of the competition to rebuild uh, the base and or to keep stimulating it, to take a break from competition and, and recovery and, and put together good solid blocks of training where they revisit zone two, uh, that is that, that capacity for mitochondrial function and then also high intensity. But um, that, that's what I've seen over the years, uh, both in the, in the real world as well as in the laboratory, looking at fat oxidation and lactic cleanse capacity, that that's what it takes. That's my modest opinion. Well, I could tell you back when I was doing a big race calendar, where I was doing 80 plus races a year, that point in the season when you'd have a couple weeks without races and I could just go out and do that long, steady ride, you could just tell your body needed it. It's like going on vacation and that first day on the beach, your body just goes, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Speaking of pros, then we would be remiss if we didn't ask you about the 2020 Tour de France champion that you coach, uh, Tade Pogacar. It, it doesn't apply necessarily to everybody listening, but out of curiosity, tell us, what does someone of his caliber look like coming out of base? And then what do you focus on to get him race ready? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty much the same principles that would apply to anybody else. Uh, he, he teaches, he's a very high level, right? Writer, as we know, physiologically, he's a privileged, uh, has great genetics. Uh, but that the fact that you have great genetics, that doesn't mean that you're just going to win the Tour de France for that, right? Bernal, for example, he has great genetics, and won the tour two years ago, but last year he, he, he didn't do well, right? With the same genetics. So obviously the way you plan and the way you train and the way you monitor things are important and the way you eat. Yeah, today has a fantastic capacity and amazing genetics. And what we've been focusing since we started working together is in, in that uh, zone two training, phase out every part of the season. So from the preseason, or off season to the altitude training camp pre-season right before the season um, to the competition and recovery once he starts racing and in between races uh, to take some time off uh, in the middle of the season to go back and, and, and do another uh, solid block of uh, zone two and, and, and training and then uh, altitude training and then competition and there's a lot of monitoring in between so they are the same you know and obviously we do testing to reset training zones and uh and i monitor him uh every day and uh, through training peaks and uh so you know that's where we can see how much he's improving or if he's if he gets stuck and not improving after weeks which is rare in today 
but this is what, what we, 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 we see and we, we change and train plans accordingly, but we build a system like that. But, but again, these are the same principles that I apply to anybody else. You know, like for example, McNulty has started the season very well and I have done the, the same thing since last year and he has done a big jump in quality from last year to this year. And we have seen it in the last races, but um, you know, whether it's today, Magnolia, or whether it's an amateur cyclist or a category three cyclist, I think the principles are are the same. So the question I have to ask is: Are you having them do? So we're getting into April, May, June, or I guess pro season is earlier, so even March. Are you having them do any interval work? I remember you saying with some of the the Grand Tour riders you you coach in the past that. You were, it was quite literally all zone two work and, and racing. Is that still the case? Well, we mix uh, intervals too during, during race, during training, of course. But this is what, what the, the calendar is very important. You know, so, some, some races, there are going to be good preparation for, uh, for other races, and they're going to give you a very good competition pace. So, the, uh, and, and if that race is not, is not your goal, uh, you can use that race to get that competition pace where, as we discussed, you're going to get it very fast if you have a solid base. If you don't have the luxury of using a race for preparation, then you have to do more high intensity before and sacrifice more of the base uh, or maybe try to mix it in the, the best you can. But uh, yeah, it is, it is not that I, it's just on Zoom. Uh, it's just I do a lot of also uh, high intensity trainings with them but uh, try to monitor all this very well. And, and this is how, for example, again, with training peaks, how can we see if, you know, if, if, if that cyclist, for example, needs to do, nowadays, we're seeing that, uh, for example, the pro level, the average uh, pace at the one they climb, you know, it's 5.5 to six watts per kilogram. And to be competitive uh, and to be able to be among the top ones, you need at least 6.2 watts per kilogram. So that's when, if you see that an athlete is, is, can, is, is not capable of producing that power output, uh, that's where you start changing things, you know, uh, and then you might include more intensity. Or maybe you see that the, the lactic capacity is not good because he or she hasn't done a good base, but absolutely the, the high intensity is important too. When you have a, an athlete at that level doing high intensity work, are there go-to workouts or areas that you focus on, or is it really you need to look at the profile of that athlete individually and then design it completely around what you feel they need? I like to get to know them and, and see, you know, like, uh, for example, there are athletes that are very explosive and they do very well in short climbs, but they don't do very well in uh, longer climbs. And, and to me, that's like, if you do well in short climbs, you should be able to do well in long climbs. Uh, that's my humble opinion. So that's why we try to uh, work more on, uh, on the weak points, right? That we have identified and, and we try to do more high intensity during long periods of time. Um, or sometimes it's the opposite. You know, some, some, some athlete is very good at 20 minute climbs, uh, but not very good at a five minute climb, but it is all out and, and, and they go at seven, seven and a half watts per kilogram. Uh, so you need to train that. So that's where you adjust things. Ideally, you have to improve in everything. Even if you're Tade Boacha, uh, you cannot just sleep in the laurels, right? You, can, you, you need to keep improving every year and keep stimulating uh, those, uh, those metabolic uh, pathways and uh, the bioenergetics. And uh, regardless of the age, this is what we do. And, and you know, we see that 
so far in, in these last three years I've been with, with Tade. Every year he keeps improving a little bit and a little bit, and hopefully he keeps going like that as well. But uh, yeah, it's about identifying the weak points and how we can uh, address them uh, in, in, in the most scientific way that we can. And, and this is where uh, you need a very solid base before entering the, the, the cycling season. Once you have that solid base in the cycling season, yes, of course, you need to focus on two things. One thing is to uh, improve that uh, turbo, right? That, uh, that high intensity capacity, the glycolytic capacity. Uh, if you have a busy racing schedule, that is going to come pretty much on its own because the best way to get competition pace is competition itself. Um, if you don't have a much, a very busy schedule of races and you only race 15 races a year, you're going to have to train it, right? Uh, so that, that, that's the one thing once we get into competition. The other thing, the second bucket, once you get into the competition is the monitoring phase. So we need to monitor athletes very well how they're simulating training and competition because uh, this is where overtraining starts happening. Uh, there's not much overtraining during the off season, uh, but this is where in the, during the season, this is where overtraining is very, very prevalent. Uh, I, I would not be able to tell you obviously that percentage of, of people, right? But I would say that uh, a good 60 to 80% of cyclists get overtrained during the season. So it's very important to monitor this to make sure that we rearrange uh, both our um, training schedule, maybe competition as well, and nutrition correctly according to the monitoring that we're doing. All right, let's shift gears then to bring it back to the the amateur rider here, the someone who maybe races five times a year, maybe races 15 times a year, does some road races that are three hours, four hours at the most, some crits. Um, everybody's program will be a little bit different, but their goals should be, I would think, similar in terms of this building race form top end that we're talking about here. And we did touch upon it at the very start of the show, but let's get into a more specific conversation about this race form. We're Again, we're talking more so about biochemical changes rather than structural changes. Dr. Sanmelan, we could revisit that in a more specific way and, and also talk about how long it takes to develop this race form. We didn't really put a number on that. Yeah, so I think that to complete a very good solid base, I'd say that it depends on the level that you race and the time that you have to dedicate. But I would say that at, at, at least two to three months are very important. Neil Henderson, the head coach at Wahoo Fitness, has a lot of experience getting riders of all levels onto top form. Here's his thoughts on what changes in the race season. So in the race season, when we think about our training and what's going on, uh, generally speaking, we start to actually pull back the overall training load. But the thing that we start to do is add more specificity specific to what we're getting ready for. So what are the demands? What are the things that are going to create the biggest difference in the race and being able to do some sort of simulation of those kind of efforts to get the confidence and to also get that, that, uh, kind of reacquaintance, reacquaintance with those sensations that you get when you're digging deep into that anaerobic capacity. So doing short, high intensity efforts, efforts with limited recovery is really beneficial there as well as in some cases like start simulation. So if you have a mountain bike uh, event that, you know, 
they always start very hard and then you settle into some level and then, you know, depending on the course, it's going to vary a little bit. But being comfortable with the level of discomfort that's associated with racing and performing well is something that you have to build into your training just enough so that you have the confidence and capacity. So let's go on the assumption that the the people listening uh, have had a good base. They got their two to three months. They, they did appropriate base work. How do they shift? What should they start doing during the races? And let's also the other assumption we're going to make here. Most of the, the masters categorize athletes I work, especially right now, because there's so few races <laughs> as a result of COVID. They're not going to be able to do 70, 80 races in a season. They, they at most might be doing 15. A lot of them are going to be just doing five or six. And there's going to be often a lot of weeks in between the races. So how, where would you put your focus? What are they trying to improve? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's challenging, right? Especially in these COVID times. Uh, so my, my, my recommendations uh, are to definitely increase intensity. Uh, try to do, do kind of race simulations either on your own or with a group of people. Those typical weekend worlds <laughs> or, or, or midweek worlds that, you know, like a bunch of uh, riders get together and they go full out, kind of like, a, uh, you know, if it, if it was a race, those are very, very good and very necessary for those ones who cannot race much because, again, you're going to need that competition pace, which is, which is the other thing that, you know, I didn't mean to maybe confuse some 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 listeners that you all you need is zone two. No, that's the base, right? But without the competition pace, yeah, you're gonna get stuck. And, and again, this is what we see many athletes who they they they, they come off with a great uh, preseason training and they show up thinking they're gonna do great, but they don't have any competition pace or high intensity. Sometimes they're too conservative. And they're missing out, right? So it is very important to to stimulate those uh, pathways at the uh, glycolytic level. And the only way to uh, to stimulate those is to to reproduce the competition pace. You know, where it's just like, and that that's I think where you need to be very specific of, of where your goals are. If you're a crit rider, you need to focus on doing very short or high intensity intervals. Or, or sustain one hour very high intensity and you can get together with other writers and do one hour full out, right? If you are doing time trials, which is what you like the most, then you need to really practice competition pace at the time trial, whatever is the distance. If it's like a 20, 30, 40 minutes, you need to, to really reproduce that. Uh, if you do a little bit of everything, you need to, to do both. But I think that it's very important to, to reproduce that. And I would say, at least uh, two to three times a week. If you are not racing, you know, two times can be during the week where you can do some either short or long intervals. And uh, on, uh, on the weekends, you can do like uh, the typical group ride where it's 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 all out kind of simulating the race. If you have uh, racing, then you need to keep in mind the, the tap tapering, right? Uh, because yeah, in these group rides, you know, if you blow up, you blow up. It's not the results are not the most important thing. But when you get to the real racing, yeah, you 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 have to be careful not to train at very high intensities either, because uh, you're going to have that already for, for, from racing. But especially 
actually, you know, the, the, the more you do high intensity training, usually the higher chances you're going to get to get of a train or tire or fatigue. And you, you need to keep that in mind and, and, and build some good days uh, of recovery before your, your goal of the racing. Lunchtime training races are a great way to get the race intensity that Dr. Samalan talked about. Let's hear more about the value of these events from coach and bike fitter Colby Pierce. Lunchtime throwdown ride. <laughs> can it be valuable training and, and how do you use it for training? It can. Um, it definitely can. It, it fits into uh, some riders' programs. And I think, you know, it depends a little bit on the psychology of the athlete. Some athletes really thrive on the very structured environment of training and intervals by themselves. And when they do that, they get good results. But even most of those athletes, many times, uh, frequently those athletes, every once in a while, they need to change gears and just go out and ride their bikes hard in a group. That said, group rides are starting to die um, for good reason. Uh, man, a pack of 30 or 40 or 50 or worse riders, road, road riders tearing around on local roads. There aren't that many communities that I know of that have healthy cycling populations that don't have major conflicts with traffic. So whenever I prescribe a group ride or recommend a group ride to one of my athletes, I always give them a lecture about being smart, not riding like an idiot, not running stop signs and stoplights just because the rest of the group is doing it, not swinging out into the lane, let alone the opposite lane of traffic, right? Thank you for doing this. It's yeah. just, you have, this is 2018, man. Like group rides are, they're more dangerous than ever. We all know about just, it's not even distracted drivers. It's just the number of drivers. Yeah. You're sharing the roads out there. You, we are absolutely sharing the roads and, and we're also all ambassadors for the sport. And man, nothing pisses me off more than when I see some bike racer blow through a four way stop or whatever. And all four cars are just going, what's wrong with this guy? Like, right. I feel gives a bad name to every one of us it really does. And it's only a couple bad apples. And then we all have to deal with the ramifications of that driver anger later. So <laughs> a bit of a rabbit hole, but in terms of training load, yes, it's, I mean, really, what is it fundamentally? You're, you're riding against or with other people's motivation. Sometimes that can push you more, but you have less control of the specifics of the workout as a blend. Sometimes I'll have people do training races and I'll say, for example, today, I want you to focus on 20 to 30 second efforts. So that, what does that mean? That means be an idiot, lead out a sprint for 30 seconds and see how long you can hold on before everyone comes around you or let a break, get up the road and see if you can weld it back together in one clean shot or just try a suicide attack. Focus on those types of efforts. Come back to the group. Depending on the course and how strong your rider is, you can prescribe some structure within a group effort at times. Most of the time, you can't really do that. You're sort of at the mercy of whatever the group's doing. So you have to accept the fact that, yes, the pro is the athlete probably doesn't have to put quite as much um, internal motivation on the line as they would if they were going to do a set of intervals or go out and ride by themselves. The downside is that you're getting a little bit of a mixed bag. I think that can be effective for athletes who don't have access to motor pacing in a taper period or approaching a big race where they need a little speed and a little zing, provided they're not already getting tons and tons of racing. Then a group ride can fit in well because it can kind of tie things together in that sense where you get that pack feel, the little bit of reactivity uh, in the sense that if someone attacks, you're like, oh, what do I do? You get, you're going to make that yes, no binary equation. Am I going to jump with them or not? And you learn to wake up that racer instinct, get those those gears turning and make those decisions quickly happen. And that can be a real pro. So they have a place, but you're giving up, you're really giving up control of what the athlete's going to get exactly. So that fits in every once in a while. Last week, we announced to members the release of our new cycling interval training pathway. 
Pathways are a new way to explore concepts, master skills, and solve training challenges. Our new cycling interval training pathway begins with the basics of interval workouts and progresses to more advanced details. How to flawlessly execute interval workouts, which intervals bring which adaptations, and how to analyze your interval workout performance. Over 21 articles, interviews, workshops, and workouts, our new Cycling Interval Training Pathway offers you the chance to master cycling's most critical and nuanced workout format. Learn more about Pathways and see our introduction at fasttalklabs.com pathways. So I actually just read a, a study last night. It's a brand new one. It came out in 2020. Uh, called Training Characteristics and Power Profile Professional U23 Cyclists. And a lot of it was was pretty much what you'd expect, but something that really caught my attention later on in the study, so they took data from these U23 riders, and they were all right around 20 years of age, so they're relatively new U23 riders, took all their data from a year and analyzed it for trends. And you mentioned this before, you just mentioned this now, and they pointed out the fact that even though you saw their overall uh, training stress during the race season going up, they saw what they were calling e-trimp. So basically their 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 heart rate, overall heart rate coming down over the course of the season. And they discussed that a bit and it basically said, we think it's because they're doing too much intensity and you can see they, they, during the season, they were only spending about 17 to 19% of their time in zone one. And this drop in heart rate was probably because they were getting fatigued. So this goes back to your comment of you do too much intensity and you're going to start pushing over training. And I think that's what they were implying in the study. Yeah. And this is a big deal of overtraining, right? Um, and because many times, you know, Many people who compete in, in, in category ones, twos, threes, or masters, right? They're people who are not professionals. So normally they're, they're, they're either working or studying, right? So they have other things, right? So they, they are at a higher risk of getting overtrained uh, because they don't have much time to rest or much time to have a very good dedicated nutrition as part of the recovery. And intuitively also many times that they, 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 they they think that they, oh, I, I, I miss uh, some, some high intensity pace, right? So they, they, they do more. Also, they don't do uh, monitoring. Uh, we do a lot of blood analysis where you can see different biomarkers of muscle damage, of, uh, of decreasing hemoglobin, which is going to affect your oxygen carrying capacity, and therefore it's going to affect your performance. And many times, this is very, very, very typical in these athletes. You know, you do, you know, they, 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 they show up to races and uh, they've been doing a very, a lot of high intensity training or combined also with high volume days. And uh, then they, 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 then they show up in, in the peak of the, of the season and they're not doing well and they blow up and they think, oh man, I, I need competition pace. I cannot, I cannot produce more watts. I, I used to, my, my FTP, for example, was 350 and now it's 300. I have lost 50 watts. I think that I need to do higher intensity because it's, it's the summer, right? What is the, the other way around in these people, which is part of the monitoring, right? It's very important. And that's where you do blood analysis and you see that this athlete is completely overtrained and has deteriorated significantly. Um, th- th- there's like a study published recently showing that 
non-supervised uh, high intensity leading to overtraining damages a mitochondrial function for example so it's not just at the muscle level that you cause muscle damage but also mitochondrial function structural changes and um, low-grade inflammation hormonal changes and this is what leads to a lot of people to overtraining it's very very typical in in, in these athletes um, especially in, in Colorado, in the Boulder area, right? Where <laughs> there are a lot of extremists, right? For like, you know, like a extreme uh, training and extreme diet, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is a perfect storm. <laughs> it seems like this is one of those areas where um, it almost seems like you should err on the side of caution. And there's a minimum required number of uh, high intensity workout sessions that you would need to elicit the response you were looking for. So I want to put you on the spot. I know it's difficult because every situation is different, but say I, a person has a race that's a month away. This <laughs> actually, actually, let's say that the, the race is two months away mm-hmm. um, and they're coming out of base and they're, and they're, they're questioning, okay, what do I do to get ready for that race that's two months away? And it, it, let's say it's a, a road race with some climbing and, um, you know, obviously it's a, it's kind of a traditional race. When, when would you have them start doing the intensity and how many sessions would you have them do per week leading up to that race two months away? And would it taper? I know this kind of gets into the peaking conversation, but... yeah. So if you have, for example, two months away, I would, I would divide that in two blocks of training to what, what is called the mi- micro cycles, right? Uh, and I like, I like usually when, uh, you know, to, to, to do three, three weeks training and one week recovery. Um, and, and this is where in these three weeks training, uh, I, I, you should still cultivate the zone two. But yeah, you should do uh, at least uh, two, three times a week um solid high intensity training which i should i would tailor that uh, according to what type of race are you going to be doing in those two months right is that a a, a criterion or is it a a, a short race or is a, a mountainous race uh, that is very long with many climbs you know so this is where you should you should tailor in my modest opinion those high intensity exercise sessions to the race that you're going to do that you're going to be preparing but i would say that two to three days a week it's important then you need to obviously to recover and that then that i kind of regeneration week i would do that um but then of course yeah the the the, the tapering has to happen right five days or so uh before the your goal right uh where you can do some activation sessions right uh to activate the muscles and those energy systems, uh, but uh, at the same time, you don't, you don't want to train hard until the very last day. Now, let me just clarify something, because you're saying two to three high-intensity sessions per week. What if somebody only has time to ride four days a week? Then you would, I wouldn't think you would want to do two to three high-intensity sessions in one endurance session. You might want to skew the ratio. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and this is what, yeah, being creative, it's important in these scenarios, right? So that this is where, uh, yeah, you can maybe dedicate one zone two session a week to keep stimulating that. And you can do another three high intensity sessions a week uh, where two might be specifically to uh, intervals. And the other one, you can build it within a longer day. 
So you can mix both, you know, a longer day with uh, some high intensity, right? And this is why you have a little bit of, of all those uh, energy systems uh, stimulated in those four days. And obviously the other three days would be uh, off days. But that's it too. It's important to, to calculate what are those going to be four days because if, if you do those four days in a row and then you rest three days, you're not, you might have maladaptations because four days in a row, either with high intensity or uh, long and high intensity, they tend to build fatigue. And maybe the fourth day, uh, you're not going to be able to uh, you know, have the, the enough adaptations needed. Right. So uh, even though you're going to have them three days off, I, I would mix the days off too. Right. So mm-hmm. two days training, one off, two days training, one off, something or two off, something like that, or three, one off. Yeah. Um, yeah. As opposed to do four in a row. Right. Uh, which is, which is important too. Another thing I'll point out, and, and uh, Dr. Samal, I'm interested in hearing whether you agree or disagree with this, but certainly a trend I've seen in the research is as you get into higher and higher intensity intervals, so start getting into those shorter zone five intervals or get into sprint intervals, it takes fewer and fewer sessions to see most of the gains. So I've seen a, a lot of studies that show, like if you're doing something like Tabatas, it takes five or six sessions to see most of the gains. If you're doing sprints, it can take just three to four sessions. So one of the things I do with my athletes, and very interesting to hear how you feel about this, is at the beginning of the race season when we're trying to build race form, I might say, okay, let's get two sessions a week, maybe have a week where we have three sessions to bring around that race form pretty quickly. But once we've done those five, six sessions and, and have gotten most of the gains, that's where I might back it down to often just doing once a week just to maintain form. Yeah, no, I would agree with that too. And especially if you have a competition during the, during the weekends, right? Yes, I, I think that uh, once you have uh, competitions in the weekends, I think that, yeah, one or twice a week, it's, it's enough to, to maintain and stimulate this, absolutely. And this is why planning is important, right? In, in the case that Chris mentioned, if you have a race two months out, yeah, you, you, you need to, to, to definitely do higher exercise intensities more frequently, right? But if you have a races on a, on a, on a you know, regular basis, um, on the weekends, for example, yeah, I, I agree with you, Trevor, that one, two days a week, uh, it's, it should be enough to, to maintain it, absolutely. I'm sure you've seen this one as well. This is called Within Season Distribution of External Training and Racing Workload in Professional Male Road Cyclists. And this followed four athletes who uh, their their target event was the World Championships. And interestingly, what you saw was from February to May, that's when they both had their biggest volume and were doing the most what they would call intense work. So they were doing that by the amount of time spent above 300 watts. So that was in the February to May block. But then in the June to September block, where they were getting ready for the world championships, volume came down, intensity came down. As a matter of fact, their average power for those few months was lower than their average power in, in the base period. Hmm. If you build, again, if you build a very good solid base within months, then I think it's, then it's time to focus on, on just stimulating it enough that you don't lose it. But definitely, you really need to start working at the high intensity, right? Because this is where you're going to be competing at. But yeah, if, if you only prepare for, for one event, 
or mainly one event is tricky and, and things can get more complicated, right? You need to try to stimulate every energy system, especially the high intensity in a forced way, which is not as easy uh, as opposed to someone who competes regularly and that high intensity, it just comes from the races, you know, in, uh, it's a big dose of high intensity and, and that, that is going to be very good or, or enough. And this is what we also see during the, during the, during, for example, the pro tour season, the spring is very busy. And uh, you see these riders who have, you know, one, one let's say they do Paris and uh, from Paris, uh, you know, two weeks later, they do Catalonia. And from Catalonia, two weeks later, they do tour of the Basque Country. So, right. So, I, I mean, one week later after they finish, right, it's uh, one week in between, right. So this is what you have a major dose of, uh, of racing, uh, but you need a major dose of recovery. So this is what the, uh, in these situations, uh, you don't need to train high intensity. Uh, you need to recover. But in the situations where you don't have many races, it gets trickier because you really need to stimulate the high intensity. And, 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 and the less competition that you have, the more difficult it gets. And, and it's, a, it's a mental game as well. Yeah, I would say the thing I got from this study and a lot of what you're saying is there is a certain point where to build that race fitness, you're probably going to have to push yourself, fatigue yourself a little bit, but that should be done way before any of your, your target races. And then as you're getting to those target races is where you want to back down, do enough to maintain that form, but really be fresh. Yeah. And I think there's a combination of, of both too, right? I think that it's important to, to keep stimulating all the way until the race. But yeah, have a different blocks where you, you just really, really focus on on, uh, on on working hard um, without to a point that you might blow up and then you need a month recovery, which is the typical thing that happens in triathletes. If you if you observe the uh, the tapering of triathletes, it's in many triathletes it's a whole month. And to my opinion, that's the wrong approach because if you have to taper a whole month for a race. That means that you probably blew up and, and got overtrained. And this is what usually happens. I would say that 75 to 80% of all triathletes are in a chronic uh, overtraining state. And, and eventually this is why they need a whole month to taper for a week. And finally they're fresh, I mean, for an event, and finally they're fresh and they, they feel good. And this has been working, right? But I really think that you can, or triathletes can do much better uh, by um, tapering just the last week of an event uh, without killing themselves doing so many intensities and so much training in the months before. So I think it's a little bit of that balance that is that is important, right? Uh, we see, you know, riders going into the Tour de France, they don't taper one month before, right? They taper five, six days before. So this is why I think that that balance is important. And again, the monitoring for that is going to help you a lot because it's going to dictate how well you're training. And uh, if you, if, and this is why I keep insisting in this, and I've been doing blood analysis for oof, 25 years, and it's been, a, it's been a great, great tool because this helps, this is continue, continuously, it's helping me to understand uh, how an athlete is assimilating both training and competition and how we need to adjust that training accordingly. And it happens all the time. Uh, there are many things that you can control in training, but uh, in the competition, there are things that you cannot control. And this is why you need to adapt, you know, and, 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 
and do things differently. For example, we've seen that the TSS from uh, Tirreno Adriatico or from Tour de Basque Country, we're talking about 1500, 1600 TSS. It's huge. Which is, you know, you know exactly, it's huge, right? And, and, and that's where like, you really need to be careful with that because even even someone at the highest level of cycling, you know, you really need to recover very well from that. And if you don't, you're going to be compromising your next performances. Same thing happens at a more amateur level, if you will. If you go into like a, a series of races and training and you don't monitor that, uh, you're compromising the rest of, uh, of the season and adaptations as well. So that's why I keep insisting that once you start the season, monitoring is uh, is crucial. Dr. Sanlan, you come at this from a very scientific point of view, yet you're working with athletes that don't necessarily understand and don't necessarily need to understand what the heck's going on in their cells. And you tell them to go out and do a workout. Um, how How adamant do you get with them about the specific workout that they do? Because there's a lot of different ways to perhaps get to the same end goal. Um, and some workouts are preferable to certain athletes over others. So do you have your favorite workouts in mind and you kind of say you will do these because they're the best? Or do you work with the athlete to come up with a comp- to compromise and say, okay, this is maybe the best one, but you hate it. So you're not maybe going to execute it with quality. And you really like this one. Maybe it's not the best workout for what we're targeting, but you're going to do it and you're going to do it well. So we'll go in that direction. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's always that, that relationship with the athlete, right? Um, if, if I start working with an athlete uh, who's very young, like in this case, Tade, very moldable, right? You, you know, you, you click well and you explain. Uh, one thing that I like to do is not just tell that like the what to do, but the why, and, uh, and that education process is very important because if an athlete knows why they're doing a workout, they understand better, you know? So that's why it's, you know, working some, with someone at a younger age is easier to kind of quote unquote impose <laughs> your, 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 your methodology, right? But that said, right, as that athlete progresses, you get to know him or her better. And also that athlete gets to know himself or herself better. And, and they're also the ones who give you feedback too. So that's what they might tell you, hey, you know what? Uh, this training, I, can, I, can I modify this slightly? Or I feel that I, I need to increase my acceleration power. Can I, can I incorporate some sessions into this, right? So yeah, sure. You go, you, 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 it's not that you negotiate, right? But uh, yeah, you adapt. Others, like, you just, uh, they don't ask. They, they tell, they, 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 they they see that this has worked for me. Uh, I'm not going to change anything. And then you have all the older uh, writers who many of them, they, uh, they think that, yeah, this has worked for me forever. So I'm going to keep doing it. Right? But there are a lot of things where you know that they have to improve. They could improve and you try to educate them on why and, and, and try to negotiate. Right. But honestly, with, with the old writers, I try not to spend a lot of time because uh, many, many of them, they have their ways already and you're not going to be able to change them, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in most cases. So I just try to be as available as possible and say, yeah, if there's any questions you have, I, w- I would suggest do this, suggest doing that. But this is why I like working with young athletes because it's much easier 
to work then with all athletes <laughs> mm -hmm. at the pro level, right? Yeah, but right. that's it too, at the more amateur level or or competitive level. These older athletes, they, they're eager for a lot of knowledge and education. And with these athletes, yeah, you, you spend more time uh, trying to explain them things, which I also love. The typical master athletes or a typical category three who is, uh, you know, 35 years old and, and finally got very, very into understanding the physiology and metabolism, right? So this is where you uh, spend a lot of time uh, into in, in this concept. So this is what I enjoy that a lot too. Trevor, are there, just to, just to put a, um, a point on this, are there workouts that you won't compromise on because you know they're the only ones that will elicit the, the, the response you're looking for? I'll give you my bias, which is remember high intensity work really hurts. And you can sit there and read the research and say, theoretically, 3030s are better for building what we want to build than, say, 2010s or, or some other type of workout. But what I actually look for is it could be the perfect workout, but as the athlete's going out and hating it, and as a result, not able to give it the full effort. You're not going to get the gains out of it. So I want to find an interval workout that's that's in the area of the you know what I, I, I want to target. But then mostly what I'm focusing on is what do they seem to respond well to? What are they, what are they going to be motivated to go out and do tomorrow? No one, this is really going to hurt. Uh, and it's to some degree, even though it really hurts, kind of enjoy it. And I'll, you know, with each athlete I work with, I, I try to get a sense of what stuff is just work that they hate and what stuff is kind of fun for them. Right. And I'm willing to compromise on the perfect intervals to get the enjoyment and the good execution. But Dr. Samalan, how do you feel about that? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I, and I think that there, there are some, some things that I, I, I might not be willing to compromise. With young kids, it's easier to explain why, you know, and, and in general with all writers, if you explain them why and, and they trust you, you are able usually, usually to convince them, right? Um, if not, you know what, I, I take a, a different approach and yeah, if they don't want to be convinced, I you know at the end of the day, I say, okay, you just, okay, you're, you, you can do it. And, Eventually, the, the writers, they end up not getting the best results. That's when they can come back to you and say, yeah, sorry, you were right. You should have said this and that. And, and it's not that you were right because you know everything by no means, right? But it's more because of the experience that you have seen the situations before. In, 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 I'm originally from Spain. In, in, in Spanish, we, we have a, a saying that might not make much sense in, in, in English, but it says, the devil knows more from being old than from being the devil, right? <laughs> so that means that, yeah, you know, when, when, when you're as old fart as I am getting to be now and you have experience, you have seen these situations many times. And this is what I try to explain athletes. Hey, look, I know you want to do five days a week sprints and intervals, but look, it's not going to work. If you want to do that, then you're on your own, right? Because you're going to fail. Yeah, and, and, and that's where eventually you, you kind of let them, which is necessary, I think, you know, we, we all fail, to be successful uh, and failure is an, an, an absolutely necessary step to be successful. And many times you see these athletes, uh, they're going to fail and, uh, and, and then you need to let them fail because that's when they will realize that they were doing the right, the wrong thing. 
and and that's when you say see you know and and um but anyways i think that making mistakes uh we all make mistakes every day i'm the first one and and, and making mistakes and failing is absolutely necessary to to take it to the next level i agree with that completely but the, the addendum to that is you need an athlete who's willing to recognize those mistakes and, and try something different and I, I identify myself with this a lot because when I was a cyclist, uh, I think I had good potential, <laughs> but but I, I, I trained horrible. Um, I eat horrible. I didn't uh, uh, recover properly. Uh, I didn't do the right thing. So I was I was I did a very good pace. I thought I recognized, but once the once the season started, I I overtrained myself. I did way too many intervals, way too many hours. I didn't recover enough. I was always uh, looking to lose weight. I, 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 it's not that I had a uh, eating disorder. I have disordered eating, right? Which I was very obsessed with food. Uh, I would try to lose weight all the time and look at the calories of everything, you know? So I was pushing the edge, you know, and it came over training all the time. And, and this is what I see in many, in many athletes. So this is why I, I, I try to tell them, hey, dude, this is, this is what I did when I was your age. And it, it, it ruined my career and, or I was destroyed after doing this and this and that. Uh, so how about you do this and this and that? And we change things, which is what we do with other athletes who are successful. So giving examples to athletes of what others do and they don't, I think it also helps as part of the educational process. I still remember working with an athlete a few years back who... Uh... <laughs> He hired me because he kept having frustrating seasons. And when I, I looked back through his previous seasons, you could see he was peaking in January. And by the time the actual race season came around, he, he was overtrained. And that's why he wasn't doing well. So I'm not going to say I did anything particularly ingenious besides just saying, backing him down in the in the base, doing some proper base and having him peak mm -hmm. when the races were occurring. And he had a great season. He got his first podium ever. And at the end of the year, we had that conversation. He goes, yep, I recognize I, I had my best season ever, but I'm firing you because I'm still more comfortable with the way I used to train. Hmm. Oh, no. <laughs> so yeah. that, that's what I mean by you have to be open to the, the changes. Sometimes you get athletes just go, I, I, this, this is just the way I like to train, even though I know it doesn't work. I know. Yes, I agree with that. And this is frustrating. And, and this is why I... Um, there's a lot of psychological component to that, right? I 100% I agree. I've seen athletes, even at the highest level, that um, they overtrain, they don't eat well, and they have horrible results. So you will do a reset button to them, and they uh, they start training better, eating well, and their performance goes off the roof, and they start winning races or being competitive. Uh, but then you know, one month later, they go back to where they were doing because that's yep. what they like. And and it was like, hello, <laughs> it, it is it is fascinating phenomenon, but it happens even at the highest level. It's I'm trying to get a hold of, wrap my head around this, right? <laughs> Completing and enjoying a Grand Fondo is just a valuable goal, and it doesn't require quite the same approach to training. Brent Bookwalter, a rider with Team Bike Exchange and founder of the Bookwalter Binge Grand Fondo, share his thoughts on how to prepare for a Fondo. Yeah, I think one of the great things about Grand Fondos that I've seen as a rider and from the point of um, you know hosting one is that you know they really are for our, all abilities, and it's a it's a great place and a great venue to 
um, sort of experiment with, um, you know, a new distance or a new load of climbing or, you know, being in a pack or it's this nice entry into, um, into just, you know, kind of testing your limits, pushing your limits. And I think that's something that most of us who ride bikes do enjoy to some extent. Um, and in that, in that sort of feeling, I think, um, one of the main things about preparing for a Fondo is that, you know, to be ready for it, you don't necessarily have to go out and replicate the exact load or experience before. I think, um, you know, if you're looking at doing a, your first hundred mile Grand Fondo with, you know, eight or 10,000 feet of climbing, it doesn't mean that in order to be able to complete that and enjoy it, you don't have to necessarily go do that, um, consistently, definitely not consistently and maybe not at all before the actual event you're looking to do. Um, and it can be, it's really just a matter of, you know, sort of slowly and systematically, um, ideally with a little guidance, sort of building those systems and looking at, you know, what portions of your skill set maybe we're going to be tested or stretched the most. And then just, um, trying to sort of tune those up and build those up. And that ultimately I think is going to leave you in the best position to enjoy it on event day. Okay. So if there was anything you were going to say, you should be doing this every week leading up to the event, what would it be? Oh, for sure. Just the consistency of riding. Um, I think that's, the, that's the biggest thing. And when I talk to friends of mine who are doing fondos or racing at a, an amateur level, I think the attraction is to sort of get caught up in the weeds and the details and reading the, the sort of hyped nuances of training and, um, all the kind of details, but I continue to just preach the fundamentals and preach the consistency and, you know, doing, doing a small amount of consistent work week after week after week is going to get you a lot farther than cramming a few rides at the end of the week or just the week before the event. Okay. So it's, it's, as you said, it's just stick with your training versus going out and doing some epic seven hour ride a couple weeks beforehand. And then, uh, have, having a couple weeks where you barely do anything is probably not the best strategy. I'd agree. Yeah. I, I, I see that play through my own racing and, and training life all the time. You know, the, the tendency is to sometimes panic train and pile it on last minute and think you can think you can fix it. Um, when it's down to the wire, but, but really it's, it's the slow, steady path and the, the consistency that really produces the most, um, most gains and most uh, consistent enjoyment, whether it's a race or a Grand Fondo. Let, let's flip this around just a little bit and um, ask the, the important question. Are there any physiological systems that uh, were a focus at one point in the season that you should definitely not focus on in the race season. Dr. San Milan, what would you say to that? Think about all the hard work that you have done to get to where you are now, when you're gonna start to peak and race and, uh, and try not to throw it, all, throw it all away. So have a good coach behind with a method uh, or in a coach who has experience also that can guide you through. Don't get overtrained, try to monitor uh, don't uh, restrict foods. Uh, you're going to need a lot of energy, which is another area that we haven't discussed. But nutrition is a key concept. And many athletes, uh, when, they, when the season starts, they start restricting carbohydrates. Uh, they start um, uh, not paying attention to the recovery. And I'm not saying about just like tapering or, or taking it easy, but recovery in terms of nutrition, right? Um, and, and that's very important. That's absolutely key. Also, it's important to um, not to lose your head 
when when things are not going well as you desired because uh, that's when uh, you start doubting of everything that you've done right and and i think that if, if, if you're confident in what you've done you have to stick to a program and, and give yourself some time to 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 achieve your your goals and if that's not the case then and instead of just you know going crazy at things and uh try to do more intensity or or <clears throat> think more intuitively uh just do some blood analysis or or, or seek uh, for attention of someone who can help you in those situations when when you're not performing well but but yeah just keep calm don't lose your head and stick to a plan and uh, if things have done well, you know you should be su successful. And, and and again, if you if you fail, uh, okay, it's 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 good. It's, I mean, it's not ideal, but it's good because that's a wake up call that okay, you know, I will not do this again. And if you fail, okay, it's part of the process, and it's necessary many times. So I, I think that important thing, like at the mental level, not to lose your 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 head. Eat well. Uh, don't restrict foods. Don't overdo it. Um, it's better to be conservative. Uh, many times people think, oh, if I could do an extra two, three days of hard days of hard training before this race, oh man. Like, well, when you have worked for so many weeks, right? Two, three days go nowhere, right? In, in stimulating energy systems. But those two, three days might really start putting you in a hole uh, and in a, an overtraining situation and jeopardize your results and start building up fatigue. So, always be conservative always i've seen many athletes that will follow the plan all base season going into the race season uh the plan's being successful but as they get close to their target event three four weeks away they start getting stressed they start getting nervous and then they get themselves off of the plan they start cramming right essentially cramming and, mm -hmm. and you can't cram in cycling Mm -hmm. end up taking months and months and months of great work and throwing it out the window. Mm -hmm. Exactly. One thing that more specifically that I would ask is, you know, we talked about how you want to maintain some of that zone two riding, some of that um, during the race season. And like you said, it's almost a refreshing break from all the intensity that you do, whether it's training or, or racing. But what about some of these other specific types of rides that you might do during the base season, to would you want to avoid them in the races? And I'm thinking specifically of something like big gear work, yeah, low I, low cadence, high torque stuff. Yeah. I am a big believer in weight training all year round, but big heavy lifting uh, and doing a lot of big gear work on the bike these rip your your legs. Set apart. it aside. This is not something you want to do right before a race. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you guys completely. That's a great point. And this is what, yeah, it ruins a lot of people's training and avoid the, the high torque. I'm also into definitely core training throughout the entire year. That's very important. This is something that in cycling, we have learned this from other sports, right? Uh, cycling is at the forefront of many sports. Yeah, I would say is that is the, the sport that is at the for, forefront of all of them. Um, but we also learn from others and, and cycling has been the back of the line when it comes to core training, strength training and stability. And we're learning more and more. Thankfully, uh, you know, people are, are doing more, paying more attention to this, but at the same time, yeah, once, once the season starts, you need to be careful as Trevor was saying with, uh, gym work, you know, um, and high torque, as you were saying also, Chris, 
and, and this is also where when looking at doing broad analysis for monitor, to monitor biomarkers of muscle damage, that's where you can see this and you can dial that in, you know, and, and, and normally you're going to see muscle damage. So yeah, you, you can really throw everything out the window if you, if you do, if you abuse this. Dr. Samnalan, you've been on the program many times before. You know how we like to close it out. We put a little challenge to our guests. We get one minute to recap the most salient points from the episode. What would be your take home from this discussion we've had today? I would say three buckets when you plan your season. The first bucket is to do a very good uh, base, right? Those two or three months that we were talking before to improve your mitochondrial function, fat oxidation, lactic cleanse capacity, aerobic base, if you will. The second bucket is to get ready for the competition. And that's when you need to do high intensity exercise to improve that glycolytic capacity, the turbo, you need to do those sessions. And the third bucket is the recovery. Because once you get into the and the monitoring, once you get into the, 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 the racing and the competition, you need to make sure that you recover well and you also monitoring that you're assimilating correctly competition and training together. So I would say that those are the main three buckets to pay attention to. Trevor, what would you have to say? Boy, this is a tough one because there's so many things to cover, so many great things that we talked about. I think I want to just make my, my take home one thing that I noticed in all these studies I, I read getting ready for this episode that I found interesting, which was the biggest training, volume and intensity, that these athletes were doing in these different studies was not in the base period, uh, was not in the peak period, but it was in that early season when they were getting ready. And my takeaway from that uh, which uh, I think I've always done intuitively with myself and my athletes, but it was just nice to see it, is when you do shift to building race form, there needs to be that short period where you're probably fatiguing yourself a bit. You're doing a little more intensity, uh, keeping the volume up, and uh, building those systems, and you're going to be a little bit tired. You're not going to perform at your best. But after you've done that, it doesn't need to be that long a period of time that's when you back down and make sure that while you're keeping up the intensity, keeping up the training, you're going to the races fresh. Because if you're going to races fatigued, you're just never going to race well. Chris? I think, yeah, this this conversation has brought me back in time to uh, an analogy that Colby Pierce used to use quite a bit, which is that sprinkling of the, he used the salt as the you know, yes. the, the top end form is the li- just you don't need a lot of it. You just need a little sprinkling of it to get ready. And, and maybe this is too light an approach, but the top end form that we're looking for, it comes around very quickly. You don't need a lot of time to make it happen. You don't need a lot of uh, sessions to make it happen. So it's that conservative approach. You don't want to ruin the whole meal by throwing too much salt on the the, the dish or too much seasoning on the dish and making it and ruining it. You just need to be careful about it. And and like uh, to carry the analogy a little bit further, as an, as Inigo has said many times, you want to monitor this. You got to put a little on and, and taste and see if it's good. You don't want to go overboard with it. How's that for a 
final analogy, final point. Like the analogy. (laughs) Well done. Very good. Very good. Well, um, thank you again, Inigo, for joining us. Dr. San Milan, it's always a pleasure to uh, hear from you, your great experiences across different realms in science and with the caliber of athletes you get to work with. So thanks for joining us on Fast Talk. Well, thank you very much, uh, you guys, uh, for uh, having me back again. It's always a a pleasure and honor to to be here. And uh, yeah, yeah, great work that you guys are doing with the podcast and all the education that is, uh, it's really, really important and necessary. And I'm sure that many listeners are uh, appreciating it that um, on a regular basis, you guys bring uh, good experts in this area, along with your own expertise and and they can get great information to improve their performance as, as cyclists and athletes. So thank you very much. Well, the honor is all ours. You're getting a bit of a rock star status out there, and the fact that you're still willing to come here is is appreciated, and I always love the physiology you bring to the show. Well, thank you again. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts, and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Inigo San Milan, Neil Henderson, Colby Pierce, Brent Bookwalter, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.